0: Medical rewrites, medical rewrites, medical. Medical rewrites, medical rewrites. Medical. Hello and welcome to Medical Rewrites, the podcast that rewrites movie scenes with evidence based medicine. I'm your host, Megan Jeffries. Our medical rewrite today will be about bridesmaids. We have two deep dives tattoo infections and foodborne diarrhea. Note that this podcast is going to include spoilers. It's also going to talk about descriptors of infectious diseases, including a lot of diarrhea talk. If you find that bothersome or that's distressing, you can skip this episode. We will have others that will be more to your fancy coming up. All right. Bridesmaids basics. Movie was released in 2011. It was built on a budget of $32.5 million and brought in $288 million. Huge box office success. IMDb gives it a pitiful rating of 6.8 out of 10. Rotten Tomatoes is a little better. Critics at 89% and audience at 76%. I don't know who the other 24% are that were like, this is not the best movie ever. But those 24 people are just sad in general. For awards, it was nominated for a Golden Globe Best Comedy uh, Movie and an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for my favorite... Melissa McCarthy, and Best Original Screenplay. It is currently streaming on Netflix, so rewatch now with your own medical take on things. A quick recap of the Bridesmaid movies for context of the scenes that we're going to rewrite. Essentially, it's the movie about how Annie, who's played by Kristen Wiig, copes with her best friend Lillian, played by Maya Rudolph, is getting married. So Annie has feelings about this. The happiness that Lillian feels about getting married is in direct contrast to the sadness of Annie's current life. Um, She's got a sex partner in John Hamm who is not the most generous lover. Uh, We'll just call this pretty unfulfilling sex with a narcissist. She lives with Gil and Bryn. Um, They're played by Matt Lucas and Rebel Wilson. They have no sense of personal boundaries, um, and she has a sad job at a jewelry store where she sells engagement rings to really cute couples that are, you know, like peak bliss. The bright spot in Annie's life is her best friend Lillian, who is now being threatened because Lillian's fiance's boss's wife, Helen, played by Rose Byrne, is coming in hot to steal this best friend role. So that's the tension of this particular movie. Okay. So at the beginning of the movie, when we're learning about Annie's life, we meet Annie's roommate's sisters. So her her Annie's roommate is Gil, and Gil's sister is Bryn. So Bryn tells Amy that she got a free tattoo from a guy in a van. She's very excited about said tattoo. Tattoo is described as a Mexican drinking worm. The tail of the worm starts belly button area, wraps around to the middle of her back, where the mustachioed worm is wearing a sombrero. The section of the tattoo on her abdomen looks, I would say, normal for a van tattoo. But as you wrap around to the back, it's really irritated and red, especially around the sombrero area. There doesn't appear to be a lot of swelling or massive edema around this tattoo, but the implication of the scene is that the tattoo was done recently and is now infected. And nuance of it was done in a van, not a sterile environment, likely health codes were broken. So deep dive, tattoo infections, topic number one. When we think of tattoo infections, we've got a couple of interesting sources of pathogens. We've got tattoo needles or the machine, the actual ink, the hands or respiratory track of your tattoo artist, and of course, secondary inoculation by the tattooee. So just your own flora that you're bringing to the table. I thought in the differential, this could also be an allergic reaction to the ink, but since the belly portion of the tattoo does not look nearly as inflamed as the back, I'm assuming that allergic reaction is pretty low on the list of possibilities. In the microbiology, first thing you got to think about when you're managing an infection is what are the possible pathogens we're dealing with here? The source infection could be from the skin of the tattoo artist or the tattooee. That's certainly going to be Staph or strep pyogenes. Some classic bangers for skin soft tissue infections. I think you could throw in a little E. coli since the skin is broken in the tattoo. It's also on your back, which is closer to your rectum. It is north of your rectum, which is less likely to have E. coli in it. But nonetheless, we know that the highest concentration of rectal or poop flora is around the rectum. So could throw some E. coli in there too. If the source of the infection is from the tattoo shop or ink, now we've got a whole different set of pathogens. And in this scenario, we need to think about mycobacterium. Mycobacterium are water-loving bacteria. The source could be the water at the tattoo shop or the van in this scenario, or the water used to make the ink at a manufacturer's level, um, or water that's used to dilute the ink at the site of the tattoo shop or van. There's been a couple of reports of non-tuberculosis mycobacterium, I'm going to refer to them as NTM from now on, from tattoo infections linked to contaminated ink. The first study that I saw was published in New England Journal in 2012, It reported an investigation of tattoo infections in Rochester, New York. The investigation team examined the tattoo artist's technique, equipment, ink, and the tattooed customers. Of the 167 tattooed customers, they found mycobacterium chelonae infections in 19 of them. The onset of infection, which appeared like a rash, occurred one to three weeks after the receipt of the tattoo. So not acute, or not like directly after All of the infections were from customers that had received black ink that had been diluted with water to gray by the manufacturer. So the tattoo artist had bought this diluted gray ink for shading purposes. The Mycobacterium was isolated from one of three unopened bottles of ink in the shop, but was not isolated from the water in the tattoo shop. This is sort of a dream career, right? Can you imagine being able to just go investigate an outbreak of Mycobacterium and trace it back to the ink developed, this is great. This is what being a private detective should be about. Susceptibilities were done for two of the patients. In the first patient, the mycobacterium was susceptible to chlorthromycin, doxy, and linazolid, and had intermediate susceptibilities to Cipro, but was resistant to cefoxitin, which is annoying when all of the beta-lactams are resistant, developing treatment plans around that, nonetheless, back on track. The second patient had a more resistant strain that was intermediate to linazolid and then also resistant to Cipro and Cifoxitin, but keeping macrolide susceptibilities, so I'm sure clinicians were really happy about that. The next outbreak, that one was Mycobacterium chelenae outbreak, Rochester, New York. Second study, another outbreak for NTM, seven years later, published in 2019, after customers reported rashes after getting tattoos. So that's how they initially report, which is really fascinating. The Department of Health found Mycobacterium abscessus and Mycobacterium fortuitum from gray wash ink, which is sort of the same story from the Rochester outbreak, and skin biopsies and tap water at the tattoo parlor. They followed up with a scoping investigation of tattoo customers and found that 38 of 246 customers had been infected. All customers reported papules or pustules, so like vesicles-ish. 76% reported redness, 58% had itching, 26% had swelling, 26% had pain, and 8% had fever. So localized infection for the most part. The onset of infection was anywhere from 1 to 59 days. That one is really crazy. I find that hard to believe. So maybe he had irritated skin, but didn't have an infection for a little bit. But that 1 to 59 days is certainly quicker than the mycobacterium outbreak in the Rochester area in New York. Third study. A group of researchers in Germany conducted a systematic review of infections after tattooing. So they did a lit review, and they wanted to collect pathogens associated with, with tattooing. They also did this side hustle as part of this project where they tested 39 open tattoo ink containers from a tattoo convention. They did the systematic review and then they also did a prospective analysis where they went to a tattoo convention in Germany and then asked to do testing on any of the samples that were available there. In their systematic review, what they found is the Staph and Strep Brain Supreme, so not a shocker, but they also found Anaerobe b-frags bacterium, not a wildly virulent pathogen. And then also some gram-negatives. Haemophilus, Klebsiella, Moraxella, Pseudomonas, and Serratia. A little nerve-wracking here when uh, I think about Klebs, Pseudo, and Serratia infections. No E. coli. E. coli didn't make the list. That makes me think that this is not like a human contamination thing, but way more likely to be either respiratory or water-associated. We are speculating. I'm not a private detective, so we're going to just read these results. Of the 39 random samples tested, they found two contaminated samples. One was just growing Pseudomonas, and the other was growing three gram negs: Pseudomonas, Stenotrophus, and Agorobacterium. Oh, four, and some Staph aureus. So decent amount of contamination, So two out of 39 bottles of ink at this convention were contaminated. Not a great sort of sterile ratio. That's what we've got. That's the best literature out there for tattoo infections. In general, acute tattoo infections appear to be caused by your typical skin soft tissue infections, staph and strep, with maybe some gram negative in there, depending on if you've got contaminated ink involved. Pathogen of note is pseudomonas. So... Not something that's usually in our list of likely pathogens when we think of a skin soft tissue infection outside of otitis externa. But in the setting of delayed or chronic tattoo infections, so anywhere from a couple weeks to a couple months afterwards, a tattoo that looks irritated, mycobacterium's got to be on your list. In that setting, ideally you want to try to get a sample and send that puppy off for susceptibilities rather than trying to invent, I mean, empiric therapy for mycobacterium is brutal. It's got to be on your differential for a late-presenting tattoo infection. That's what we know about. That's the evidence for tattoo infections. Let's get back to the movie. Back to Bridesmaids. After Brynn shows her tattoo, Annie suggests a more supportive care approach. She's a good antibiotic steward, Annie is. She recommends frozen peas. Brynn then takes this advice and then dumps the loose peas down her back. It's very possible that Bryn's tattoo infection is self-limiting and frozen peas is the, in fact, cure that she needs. It's tough to tell if there's obvious cellulitis on Bryn's back, which is the head and body of the worm, but there's definitely skin trauma there. Let's assume, for the sake of this rewrite, that the redness on Bryn's back, especially around the sombrero, is, in fact, cellulitis. Here, my treatment choice, see what your treatment choice would be. Pause, think about what you would treat Bryn with and let's compare and contrast at the end. For me, I'm still going to go with the classic cephalexin. I'd give her one gram TID for five days. I would start there. If she hasn't resolved by then, we can certainly extend duration, but I'm not into wildly long durations to begin with. Ideally, cephalexin would be dosed Q6. I get this, but I can't ask patients to wake up in the middle of the night to take cephalexin when I am uncertain that there's actually going to be a significant difference in cure rates between Q8 and Q6 regimens. I get that the pharmacodynamic approach here would be Q6, but in the setting of a non-life threatening infection, I'm way more willing to be a little generous with the frequency for the sake of adherence. And on the back of the napkin calculations, I can get around 50% time above the MIC with a one gram TID regimen. It's definitely 10 to 20% short of the 60 to 70% goal for cephalosporins, but this appears to be a relatively simple infection. Again, not life-threatening. I'm willing to take the hit. If Bryn had a life-threatening infection that she's in the MICU for, we would, of course, maximize the pharmacodynamics there. I'll put in the show notes my pharmacodynamic calculations because I cannot imagine that you guys are sitting on the edges of your seat waiting to hear me talk about half-lifes and MICs. Before moving on from cephalexin, for those of you that have developed your regimen using cefadroxil, I'm going to take a moment and send out your props right now. So cefadroxil, also an oral first-gen cephalosporin, it is not nearly as common or as commonly prescribed or known outside of the ID circles. There's definitely a fan club like Taylor Swift that's really enjoyed, a very loyal and engaged fan base. And I get it. The adoration to cefidroxyl is understandable. It's not available in all pharmacies. You sort of have to manage trying to get a hold of it for your patients before you prescribe it. But the reason it's wildly popular is the fact that its half-life is one and a half to two hours. This is almost double that of cefalexin. So it allows for less frequent dosing, which is why ID clinicians love it. Because the biggest problem we have with oral beta-lactam regimens is you have to take them so frequently when you want to use a beta lactam because i love a beta lactam safety efficacy all day every day but when my competition is a fluoroquinolone which is once a day maybe twice a if you're using cipro or bactrim or doxy or clinda which has been the classics of all skin soft tissue infections ever since the outbreak of community acquired mrsa occurred in early 2000s or it's their assumption that there is better bioavailability with non-beta-lactams, and therefore, they're the only oral options that we should really be thinking about. We're fighting a lot of history, a lot of dogma, a lot of habits. The cefadroxil might be our cephalosporin to break the curse, because you likely can get away with dosing at Q12. This is a whole different soapbox. I'm going to get back on track. In the rewrite, here's my pitch. I think the rewrite needs to include Annie telling Brynn to go to the doctor because I think that tattoo looks a little gnarly. To fit with the scene, it's got to be funny. I mean, we got to give Annie a good line to really sink her teeth into. And a little maybe condescending because Annie also thinks Bryn is a bit of an idiot. The best that I got is picture Kristen Wigg's voice. Bryn, your worm looks sick. Maybe you should see a veterinarian. It's a first draft. If you've got a better line there, I'm all about hearing about it. Rewrite number one in the books. Next up is arguably, I guess, one of the biggest plot points in this movie, which is the gastrointestinal madness that takes place. Still early in the movie, minute 37, we see all of the bridesmaids head out to the all-you-can-eat Brazilian steakhouse. Annie is very excited because she's found this secret hotspot restaurant. So she's getting some credit for their which is, of course, foreshadowing for all this is going to go south real quick. So they're at the table, hunks of protein stacked on big metal rods or swords are brought up to the table. Everyone eats beef and chicken except for Helen, who is a stick in the mud. She says she doesn't want to bloat before a dress fitting. We know this. Helen is lame. Right after lunch, the whole group heads back to a very fancy, reservation-only bridal shop. The first hint that we see that this is going to go sideways After they get into the bridal shop is Megan, who's played by Melissa McCarthy. She burps in the middle of describing the bridal shop as some classy shit here. Uh, She then apologizes and says she's not confident in identifying what end that gas came out of. Oh, my God. I love that scene. (laughs) A few minutes later, we see Amy looking clammy. She starts wiping sweat off of her face. She fans herself. <laughs> so that makes two out of the six bridesmaids that are displaying some symptoms of illness. Megan elegantly flops over on the back of the couch into the cushions where we first see our first audible bow sounds. That's like the best gif ever, by the way, if you need to spice up a slide you've got during the dress try-on, Rita looks pale, sweaty. She also has some audible bowel sounds. Then all of the sort of meat-eating bridesmaids complain that they're hot. Sort of like our first full group effect and symptoms from the Brazilian steakhouse. Megan's the first to dry heave. Rita is the second. She's the first to projectile vomit, followed by Becca. And Megan releases diarrhea into the sink. An amazing scene. Helen declares it's food poisoning, saying that the lamb was gray and the chicken was weird. Lillian has her first audible bowel sounds, and she walks out of the store into the street, wearing her beautiful wedding dress, but is unable to make it across the street to the bathroom and utters the highly quotable, It's happening. It's happened. As she poops in her wedding dress. On the way home, Amy vomits. Conclusion, gastrointestinal craziness. So here we are. Acute diarrhea. Let's do a deep dive. Clinical definition of acute diarrhea is three or more loose or watery stools in 24 hours, and it needs to last for less than two weeks. Beyond two weeks, they start calling it chronic or delayed, people disagreeing about what to call it after two weeks. But everyone's on board with less than two weeks is acute. But for the sake of movie magic, let's diagnose this meat-eating bridesmaid group with having acute diarrhea after eating at the Brazilian steakhouse. Several of them also had vomiting, but we're just going to stick with the diarrhea here. The first fork in the road when you think about diarrhea is going to be inflammatory or non-inflammatory. From the infectious side of things, it doesn't really matter because infections can be either inflammatory or non-inflammatory. Viruses, parasites, and non-toxin producers are more likely to be non-inflammatory, whereas toxin-producing are more likely to be inflammatory. But again, you just don't know that at the time. Other inflammatory diarrhea is going to be, think of Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. Symptom differences between non-inflammatory and inflammatory are usually about severity. So if there's a lot of pain, more likely to be inflammatory or the presence of fever or systemic symptoms, that's going to be more inflammatory versus non-inflammatory. We could assume based on what we saw in the bridal shop that this is going to be an inflammatory diarrhea. Because Helen is not sick, we can narrow down to this being the etiology of meat. So we're going to lean into this is a meat-borne acute infectious diarrhea. The 2017 IDSA guidelines on infectious diarrhea, they have a potential pathogen list after consumption of raw or undercooked beef. The list on that for undercooked beef is shiga toxin-producing E. coli, clustered in perfringes are the two that can come from beef or poultry. Poultry-specific pathogens are Salmonella, Campylobacter, and Staph, Staph specifically. There wasn't anything in the restaurant that was obviously pork, but again, there's just like hunks of meat on swords, so they could certainly have had pork. So to be inclusive of the pork lovers on this group, we could also include Yersinia and Trichinella as pathogens. And there's nothing specifically on the list for lamb, although we do know that the bridesmaids ate lamb. So that's what we get from the IDSA guidelines. The CDC has some other good content. They've got a section on food poisoning and a table that suggests the likely pathogen based on the time from ingestion of the contaminated food to symptoms. And this is where we break the case wide open for the bridesmaids. Of the possible pathogens for the bridesmaids, the fastest onset is staph warriors, and that happens at 30 minutes. And we know they went from the Brazilian restaurant right to the bridal shop. Because Helen doesn't want to bloat, and there's like nothing happening in between those two scenes. The other options are in perfringes and salmonella. They come in at second place at six hours. The onset of symptoms for Campylobacter, E. coli, and E. coli are like three days. So that just can't be part of our differential here. Considering they went to the dress shop right after lunch, our options really are Staph aureus, clostridum and salmonella. And that we're being generous with this six-hour window. Treatment recommendations for infectious diarrhea across the guidelines and review articles and opinion pieces are wildly inconsistent <laughs> in terms of antibiotics and anti-diarrhea meds, like loperamide. There are people that are advocating for both use of antibiotics and loperamide. And then there are definitely people that are saying no antibiotics, but those same people are not necessarily saying no loperamide. And then there's people saying don't do anything with it, just have the diarrhea and embrace the diarrhea. Everyone agrees on rehydration. It doesn't look like any of her bridesmaids are acutely dehydrated. Although on the drive home, Lillian and Annie look rough when they have to pull over so Annie can puke. Definitely they need some oral hydration replacement, but no one's wildly sick. But there's some recipes. In a review called Acute Diarrhea in Adults from the 2022 American Family Physician, they have recipes for oral hydration solution, which I had never seen before, which I think are interesting, so I'm going to share with you. The water recipe is based on a quart of water. So for every quart of water, you add a quarter teaspoon of salt and two tablespoons of sugar. I think you got to throw a flavoring in there. I'm just not sure I'm going to choke down a quart of sugar, salty water, I don't know. So I think you gotta throw some flavor in there. If you do, throw some lemon, I suppose, in there. It's gonna be great. Other options that they give is a quart of chicken broth plus two tablespoons of sugar. That sounds like the worst option. Give me some sugar salt water with lemon versus a sugary chicken broth. But again, never had it. Or 32 ounces of Gatorade with three quarters of a teaspoon of salt. So you gotta you gotta spice up your Gatorade there. The IDSA guidelines recommend two to four liters of fluid replacement for rehydration, followed by replacement losses, which is about two liters a day. I mean, I'm telling you guys, I think I've been just dehydrated my whole life. There's just no way I've ever taken on this much fluid and replacement fluid, let alone maintenance. Yeah. So everyone should get hydrated. Do it with some salty stuff. I throw some sugar in there. Next. So anti-motility meds. Honestly, this is one of the number one questions friends and family give you. Everyone's got diarrhea. What do you do about it? And the hard part is deciding whether you should recommend any anti-motility agents. The IDSA guidelines stay state that anti-motility medications may be given to immunocompetent adults with acute watery diarrhea, but should be avoided if there is suspected or proven toxic megacolon. Well, yeah, my friend's not going to call me with toxic megacolon. They're going to be in the hospital with wild abdominal pain. No one's going to give somebody with a surgical abdomen anti-diarrhea meds. So not wildly helpful there in terms of normal diarrhea practices. What they cite for that description is pretty interesting. So there's two case series about outbreaks of foodborne cholesterol and perfringes infections within residential care facilities. So think of vulnerable patient population that's being taken care of in a facility where they're being fed by a staff. In one facility, seven residents had intense diarrhea the day after Thanksgiving dinner. The infectious cosm was clustered in perfringes. Three of the patients had necrotic colons. Two of them died. All of the patients were receiving multiple anticholinergic medications as a confounding variable here meaning the implication is that they already have poor peristalsis based on the anticholinergic side effects. The medication list on four of the other residents was not listed, so they were unable to look for causality there. But the thought is that this anticholinergic meds allowed for longer toxin exposure in the colon that led to necrosis, which ultimately led to death. So that is the hint. This case study is the hint that they're using to say, don't use anti-motility meds for people with toxic megacolon. But Again, no one knew that in the setting, they had Thanksgiving dinner and then had diarrhea. No one knew that this was a clostridium perfinges infection that was happening here. Monday morning quarterback is easy. Don't give somebody with clostridium perfinges uh, infection anti-diarrhea meds, but it's very hard in the moment. I'm saying boots on the ground, folks. This is a challenging clinical scenario. The second outbreak that's cited, that sort of supports this idea of not giving an anti-motility med is, this was done in a psychiatric hospital. So again, vulnerable population. So many psych meds have anticholinergic properties. So this is going to be hard to sort of tease out. But 54 residents and staff got diarrhea plus vomiting and cramps six to 12 hours after eating chicken that had been cooked and left out for a day. Ooh, sort of nightmarish cooking practices. So 24 hours after eating the chicken, three patients were dead. Wildly bad outcomes. All three were on anticholinergic meds, and one of them was given loperamide based on their symptoms. All of them had necrotizing colitis. So that was published in 2012 in MMWR. The data supporting not giving loperamide or any other antimotility meds is horror stories of really bad GI infections after eating contaminated food. It is not what you would call wildly scientific in saying that there is really this link between anti-motility and things and, and cause of death as much as high burden of infectious bacteria that cause necrosis in the bowel. It's hard to say that anticholinergic meds or loperamide were the cause here, but probably not helping. The risk benefit of this finding led to the teaching, these really horror stories, basically got simplified down to don't give anti-motility meds to people with toxin-producing GI infections or don't give anti-motility meds if there's blood in the stool. I think lots of us got some sort of that (laughs) one-liner teaching somewhere along the way. If someone has blood in their stool, don't give them anti-motility meds. The problem with that is there's a lot of bacterial diarrhea that's toxin-producing that's not at all going to result in blood in your stool. It's impossible to tell if a person's diarrhea is bacterial toxin without diagnostics. We've got some GIPCRs as of late, which is great. That has certainly helped in rapid diagnosis, but is largely only used in hospitals and high resource clinics. So the everyday person is certainly not going to know if they've got a toxin producing. The other thing of note is that none of the people that had Clostridium perfringens in these case series had blood in their stools. So you're just not going to know if you have a necrotizing toxin-producing infection in your guts. Blood is not the end-all be-all here. The guidelines for the prevention and treatment of traveler's diarrhea from the International Society of Travel Medicine, they recommend anyone with traveler's diarrhea can use loperamide. Traveler's diarrhea, a little different than leftover chicken, but the same thing is like it's all food-borne diarrhea. The idea behind travel's diarrhea is you're, they're eating foods in other places that may or may not have standard food prep that we get in the U.S., for instance. One exclusion that the International Society of Travel Medicine makes is if you have severe diarrhea from dysentery, which again means growth blood in the stool, that you're not supposed to use loperamide. There's not a whole lot of citations to support that approach, but I guess it makes sense. So let's do a deep dive in loperamide. Everyone that calls with diarrhea that's like, can I take loperamide, they want to get rid of the diarrhea. They got to go to work. I got to drive in a car and I don't want to poop in my car seat. There are very practical reasons to want to shorten the duration of your diarrhea that make life better. So let's dig into if loperamide really is something that needs to be avoided. We got two RCTs, one that included the use of loperamide for infectious disease related diarrhea. The methodology is not great. They are RCTs, but it's not exactly what we want. The first RCT is from 2007. It compared time to resolution of diarrhea between loperamide alone, rifaximin alone, or rifaximin plus loperamide. Really nice. We got three groups, two maybe control groups with paramide alone and rifaximin alone, and then the combo. The sample was healthy U.S. adult students attending summer school in Mexico for two to five weeks. They excluded students that were moderately or severely dehydrated or had bloody stools or received antibiotics within seven days of enrollment. So our inclusion is pretty young, healthy adults. So I'm assuming immunocompetent, but that's not explicitly in there. There was approximately 100 students in each treatment group. In the rifaximin group, they got 200 three times a day for three days. The loperamide group got four milligrams initially and then were instructed to take two milligrams after each bout of diarrhea. But they were given a max of eight milligrams per day, and they could use that for two days. And then group three, which is, again, Rifaximin 200 TID for three days, plus loperamide four milligrams initially, followed by two milligrams after each unformed stool, not to exceed eight milligrams for two days. So those are our three groups, treatment regimens. Most common patient, essentially, if you looked at it, it was a white female who was 26 years old. Baseline diarrhea load was five episodes over the prior 24 hours before enrollment. The two key outcomes that researchers looked at was duration of diarrhea and the number of diarrheal episodes post-treatment. Loperamide alone, mean duration of diarrhea was 69 hours, three days, with seven episodes of diarrhea over those three days. Rifaximin alone, 32 hours of diarrhea, six episodes of diarrhea. Rifaximin plus loperamide, 27 hours with four episodes of diarrhea. Getting better with each group, the loperamide alone of three days was a little bit shocking to me. It feels like that would be the normal duration, but maybe not. We'll see how this plays out. The other thing that this study did was they looked at pathogens. Pathogen was identified in 50% of the students. Most common were toxin producers, meaning enterotoxigenic E. coli was responsible for 35% of these. Enteroaggregative E. coli was in 17%. And then we got single digits for Providentia, Shigella, Salmonella, Campylobacter, Aeromonas, and Plesiamonis. The loperamide group had a higher frequency of abdominal pain, cramping, nausea, and vomiting which I think is maybe a little bit of a signal. So it can give a little bit of a credence to the idea that if you are doing toxin trapping, that you can make symptoms worse. So if you slow down peristalsis of your gut, that you get more toxin exposure, and therefore you can get more symptoms like abdominal pain, cramping, nausea, and vomiting. It would have been great to have a placebo group here. How long would this diarrhea have happened? Did loperamide stop anything in terms of duration at all? Would there have also been just as many complaints of gas, abdominal pain, etc. in the placebo group? But I don't know if that was like an IRB shenanigans or not. Either way, it's hard to tell whether loperamide is doing more harm or more good. Fast forward a decade and we have a second study called TREAT-TD. It's always exciting to me when ID studies get a name. Cardiology has had the monopoly on naming trials for decades now, so I feel like we're finally getting a little love there. So it's called Treat TreatTD. There's just oddly a weird number of traveler's diarrhea studies that happened in 2017, by the way. Published in CAD 2017. Sample included U.S. and U.K. military people that were deployed to either Afghanistan, Djibouti, Kenya, or Honduras, that ultimately then sought medical care for diarrhea. Inclusion criteria was our classic three loose stools in 24 hours, or two loose stools in 24 hours with some symptoms like nausea, vomiting, cramping, or this is my new favorite word, tenesmus, T-E-N-E-S-M-U-S. So tenesmus means phantom pooping. This is beautiful. When you feel like you have to poop, but can't or, or don't, there's nothing in there to poop out, but your whole intestinal tract is like, let's get rid of all the things in here, but there's nothing in there. Tenesmus, T-E-N-E-S-M-U-S, super fun. So they excluded if you had any dysentery, so again, blood in your stool, or had received antibiotics within 72 hours. They allowed you to have taken malaria prep, though. So malaria prophy, if you had that, you could still be included in the study. Treatment groups were all single-dose regimens. So you either got rifaximin, 1,650 milligrams, azith, 500, or levoflox, 500. Everyone was given loperamide, 4 milligrams initially. And then on their own, they were directed to take 2 milligrams after each unformed stool. And they gave this group a max dose of 16 milligrams per day. So double the first study in 2017. Of note, I thought this was interesting. They screened 844 patients. 46 were excluded for dysentery or febrile diarrhea. So in a very unscientific way, 46 out of 844 is like 5%. 5% of people that get diarrhea in Afghanistan, Djibouti, Kenya, or Honduras are going to end up having bloody diarrhea or dysentery, which is, I think, actually more than I guessed. But anyways, 5%. There's approximately 100 people in each antibiotic treatment group The most common patient was essentially a 27-year-old white male that was in the army. The median duration of diarrhea for each antibiotic was azith, single-dose, single-dose regimen, azith, 500 milligrams. Median duration of diarrhea, 3.8 hours. Putting Rifaximin to shame in terms of duration of diarrhea. Now, the other group was a 26-year-old white girl and here we've got a 27 year old white guy. The groups are not what you would call wildly different in terms of patient population, but outcomes, totally different. Rifaximin in this group, 5.6 hours. So there is just different diarrhea in Mexico than there is in Afghanistan, Djibouti, Kenya, or Honduras. Very strange. Levofloxacin, 6.4 hours. So durations are twofold, threefold lower than the rifaximin loperamide study. So hard to tell what's happening here because the pathogens pretty similar. Enteroaggressive E. coli was present in 70% of the cultures, of which there was just a single pathogen. 70% of all of the cultures included enteroaggressive E. coli. It was just a single pathogen in 38%. Enteropathogenic E. coli was present in 54% of the cultures, 24% of single pathogen infections. And enteroinvasive E. coli was in third place. It showed up in 25% of all infections of multi-pathogen diarrhea. And then the only other important pathogen that they found was norovirus in 15%. The norovirus people should have just had whatever duration of diarrhea they were going to have for norovirus. Authors did do a breakdown on cure rates in each antibiotic group based on infecting pathogen, which was nice. Azith was, again, the fastest to cure any of the E. coli infections with a median of three hours which is wildly shocking that it's just that fast. Levofloxacin was a little longer, around six hours, and rifaximin was the slowest, which is around 20 hours. So rifaximin versus E. coli, then we start sort of mirroring the outcomes that we saw in the 2007 study. And rifaximin is around 20 hours for a basic E. coli acute diarrhea infection. Loperamide did not seem to slow time to cure for anyone. But again, we didn't have any control groups. We didn't have a placebo group. The authors cited the Cochrane Review indicating that antibiotics plus loperamide are better than loperamide alone. And I think we've got pretty good data here saying that loperamide alone is certainly not as fast as antibiotics are for clearing diarrhea up. Even though antibiotics and loperamide have shown to decrease duration of diarrhea, it doesn't come without at least some consequences. We've got data that indicates that we certainly know that antibiotics don't do anything for GI flora, and maybe loperamide also responsible for some GI flora sadness or dysbiosis. There was a pretty large study that a group of authors in Finland did that looked at a traveler's diarrhea and changes in microbiome. The first included people who lived in Finland And then they went to a travel clinic and they were seeking advice on is there any prophylaxis or vaccines that I should take. And if they were eligible, that travel clinic enrolled them into a study of which they were included if they were traveling somewhere outside of the Nordic countries for more than four nights. So going somewhere, quote, exotic for at least four nights. Everyone did a pre and post poop analysis and a pre and post travel questionnaire. Primary outcome that they were looking for was the acquisition of ESBL or carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae colonization in the post-poop. The theory being, if you leave Finland with CRE and ESBL-free poop and you come back with it, let's look at some of those risk factors associated with that. They enrolled 430 participants. 80% of them left ESBL negative and came back ESBL negative. Clean as a whistle, GI-wise, for four nights on your travel outside of Finland. of these patients started out ESBL negative and came back ESBL positive. None of them were CRE positive. Now, this study was published in 2015. Who knows if they had been later on, if they'd have more CRE in their stool now, because we know CRE certainly increased, yada. Authors looked at risk factors, and they found that use of antibiotics during travel increased the risk of ESBL acquisition by threefold compared to those not taking antibiotics. The biggest sort of caveat or confounding variable of this sort of relatively straightforward multivariable odds ratio that they found is that they didn't look at location of travel necessarily when they looked at acquisition in association with antibiotics. If you go to Canada for four nights, your risk of ESBL of acquisition is going to be lower than if you go to Egypt or India for four nights, right? The incidence of gram-negative resistance in southeastern, middle eastern countries is way higher than it is in other places like Greenland, for instance. Whether or not the antibiotics made that difference or if the location you travel to is not teased out in this particular study. The other thing that they found, obviously, is a multivariable analysis is that where you traveled is much higher. They have a resistance map in the study, but I would also like to shout out the actual website called Resistance Map. All the countries that participate send essentially their antibiogram to this website. They have beautiful graphics about it. You can look at individual pathogens or individual antibiotics. It's run by One Health Trust, which was formerly called the Center of Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy. Not exactly it rolls off the tongue. But anyways, One Health Trust runs it now, but if you just search resistance map, you can find this website. The gram-negative hotspots are essentially India, Pakistan, Iraq, Egypt, and sort of the surrounding countries around that area. Same group of authors did a follow-up analysis, but only included travelers that actually had diarrhea while they were traveling. This sample was 288 patients. Half of them went to either sub-Saharan Africa, 25% with the Southeast Asia, and 15% went to South Asia decent amount of gram-negative exposure there. Symptoms of traveler's diarrhea and use of medications such as loperamide and antibiotics were included in the post-travel questionnaires. They were, again, primarily looking for ASBL acquisition because no one got CRE. Had somebody got CRE, that would have been part of their outcomes as well. This 288 patients were divided into four groups based on what they did to manage their diarrhea while traveling. Group one, no antibiotics, no loperamide. Group 2 loperamide only, group 3 antibiotics only and group 4 was like everything, loperamide, antibiotics, probably some sort of dance as well to try to get rid of this. The results were really fascinating. The biggest group was no loperamide and no antibiotics. So the largest number of the sample just went, I'm going to embrace this as part of my travel experience and I'll have a very good story to tell people when I get back about how I ruined my white shorts, right? So these folks, no loperamide, no antibiotics. The colonization rates, again, ESBL colonization rates, 21% for the people that did nothing. So this is the standard if you travel to sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia or South Asia of people that get diarrhea, 20% of you are going to get also an ESBL colonized. Whether or not those things are related or not, who knows? The people that use loperamide only, again, 20%. So same level of ESBL acquisition as those that did nothing. Antibiotics only, 40% of that group. By the way, we're down to 45 people in that group. 45 people that took antibiotics, 40% of them came back with the ESBL acquisition. And then group four, which used loperamide and antibiotics, we're down to now 14 people sample- came back with the ESBLs. Bizarre, bizarrely high rates of ESBL acquisition in this group that took loperamide and antibiotics. So either they're like the diarrhea was so bad that they just were like going to take all the things that could potentially do it, or that there's something about the use of loperamide and antibiotics in here. I don't know. Causation versus causality. Causality versus association not being proven here. In the discussion, the authors put forward this theory. Quote, because of its anti-motility effect of loperamide, contact time of the antibiotic to the gut lumen is increased and the selection pressure posed by the antibiotic may be prolonged, thus intensifying its unfavorable effects. This is worrisome because I just don't know if I'm on board here because the rate of ESBL acquisition in the loperamide group should be higher than the no treatment group and they were the same. Both are 20%. So I am pretty happy to chalk this 71% acquisition rate up to random chance just based on sample size on this group of, you know, there's 14 people in group four uh, in the loperamide antibiotic group. So I'm not going to say that the combination of loperamide and antibiotics are obviously torturous on your GI flora. In summary, here's what we know. Antibiotics, shortened duration of trials diarrhea for sure. Loperamide might <laughs> shorten it. Loperamide probably does, but it's not nearly as dramatically. Diarrhea duration is closer to like three days. It's possible you might be doing further damage to your GI floor with, certainly with antibiotics and maybe the combination of antibiotics and loperamide or maybe just antibiotics. And maybe you should just increase the amount of kimchi and kombucha in your life, right? And that's just the story here for travel. For the rewrite, the purpose of this whole experiment that we're doing, I'm going to pitch a whole additional scene. So not to rewrite up the dialogue because the dialogue in this movie is "Mm, chef's kiss. Perfect. Picture this. The bridesmaids collect Lillian from the street. So Lillian has just, it happened. She just had that moment in the street. So the bridesmaids go collect her in her poop filled dress. And then they're going to trudge to the pharmacy with clenched butts, clenched glutes. And they're going to be on their way to either get diarrhea meds or pick up an antibiotic that someone has called into their PCP. And behind the sad walking bridesmaids is going to be Helen. So Helen is, of course, walking normally, and she's going to really lean into her superiority, that Helen is a better person than all of these heathens that are eating steak at this restaurant. So Helen's going to walk along saying that the use of antibiotics destroys your microbiome and will cause all of them to develop diabetes and irritable Bowel Syndrome. Because Helen just seems like that gal that's read a news headline about the role of the microbiome and chronic diseases and has just absorbed that into her being. And now she nurtures her microbiome and tells all the other people about why her life is better because her microbiome is better. That's the rewrites that I've got for Bridesmaids. Check out the references that I've used in this episode in the show notes if you know of a movie that deserves a medical rewrite, fill it in to drop it into the form that's on the website. This has been a podcast presented by me, Megan Jeffries, production and editing by Anne Conley. She's the best. And music by Brandon Meager. Please listen, rate, and review, and follow all episodes available now for free wherever you get your podcast. For those of you still listening, post-credits because you're driving your car and you can't reach your phone, there's no way to include this in the podcast. But at one hour and 13 minutes in the movie, the plane has to make an emergency landing in Casper, Wyoming. This is a real town in my home state, my very real home state of Wyoming. And it's the location where I got my very first and only speeding ticket in my whole life. The plane had to land because Annie, who's a fearful flyer, she had some drinks, alcoholic drinks. And then I think she got a Benzo from Helen. And then she got sassy with the flight attendant and called him Stove instead of Steve, which is again, beautiful dialogue. Brilliant writing. Okay, bye.